0: Good morning. Well, I know it's the day after Christmas, but we as Christians never move on from celebrating Christ. We never move on from celebrating the birth of Christ because we know that in celebrating his birth, we're ultimately celebrating the the purpose of his birth, why he was born. Not just the fact that he was born, but because he was born to come. And to die for our sins, and so this morning I want to look at Scripture that reminds us of the significance of why we celebrate Christmas, why we should always be celebrating Christ. And some of this comes from the fact that uh, in our family every year, from Thanksgiving to Christmas, we read a little book, and I've given it out to, to many people in this church. I love it. It's a it's just a tiny little book. It's called God's Gift of Christmas by John MacArthur. And it basically just goes through scripture, through prophecy, through psalms, through New Testament narrative, uh, through some of the epistles. um, And it just talks about the birth of Christ. Uh, It talks about the significance of it. Uh, And it just helps us as a family get our mind just immersed in the greatness of God's gift of Jesus Christ each Christmas. Because there's many, many things every season that, that, that tend to crowd that out. And I think we're fighting to focus on Christ. We just finished it yesterday morning. We read the same book every year, but every year I feel like we learn more and more of the depths of God's grace. Every year the truths of his word in this little book about the birth of Christ just get greater and greater as we grow more and more in him and love and know him more. But one of my favorite quotes in this book comes near the end. We just read it last Wednesday, and it says this. He says, The important issue of Christmas is not so much that Jesus came, but why he came. There was no salvation in his birth, nor did the sinless way he lived his life have any redemptive force of its own. His example, flawless as it was, could not rescue us from our sins. Even his teaching the greatest truth ever revealed could not save us. There was a price that had to be paid for our sins. Someone had to die, and only Jesus could do it. Hebrews 10 is a wonderful, wonderful, uh, Hebrews 10, 4 through 10, in fact, that little section is a, maybe one of the greatest sections of Christmas verses in the Bible. Uh, we, we often overlook it and, and don't think about it at Christmas time. But, but Hebrews 10, 4 through 10 says this It says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Now look at these next three verses. These next three verses in Hebrews 4 are quoting Psalm 40. This is a messianic psalm. It's written by David, but ascribing the words of Dave, that David penned to the lips of Jesus Christ as a first hand narrative. Of his own salvific work, this is amazing. It's also painting uh, or pointing out the fact that the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, the once-for-all sacrifice, that sufficiently satisfies the wrath of God and pays for our sins as the acceptable guilt offering of God, that this work has been revealed and inscribed in the writings of the Old Testament. God chose to reveal. His plan through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, there's more gold here to dig out than we have time or mind to even comprehend this morning. But make a note of it. Go back and look at Hebrews 10 on your own. But let me read 10, 4 through 10. And look at what he says. It says, therefore, when he, Jesus, this is Christ, comes into the world, he, Jesus, says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Speaking to his father. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you have taken no pleasure. And then I, firsthand speaking from Christ, he said, then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. So he's saying in the Old Testament, it is written about me to do your will, O God, And after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he, Christ, said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And by this this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's an amazing truth. He's taking... Words that that David wrote years, hundreds of years before and saying, this is my revelation of my son, that a body would be prepared for for him, that he would come as man to do my will, the Father's will, and this is what the Lord had ordained from the very beginning. The Old Testament attests to the work of Christ, Like I said, those may be some of the greatest Christmas verses in Scripture. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, taking on flesh, came to die for our sins. This has always been the Father's eternal and perfect plan for the redemption of his children. In that little book, MacArthur actually goes on to say, in that same chapter, here's a side of the Christmas story that is not often told. That those soft little hands, fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, were made... So that nails might be driven through them. Those baby feet, pink and unable to walk, would one day walk up a dusty hill to be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head with sparkling eyes and eager mouth was formed so that someday men might force a crown of thorns upon it. And that tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped open by a spear. Jesus was born to die. The sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, these mean everything to us. It's not that he was born, it was why he was born. We know from his word that we, all of us, as mankind, that we are separated from God because of our sin. We know from his word that we are all sentenced to death and to eternal damnation because of our sin. We know that we are unable to know God. We are unable to come to God. We are unable to seek God, approach God, or to discern the things of God Because of our sin. And we also know, because his word tells us this, that we are enemies of God. We are hostile towards God. We are haters of God. And as we live this present life, we currently abide under his deserved wrath because of our sins. It's just a matter of timing. God is faithful. He always does all that he says exactly as he says it. We cannot doubt him just because we don't know the timing. There will come a day that each of us will stand before Jesus Christ. Either as, his, as, as one of his people saved by his blood to receive a reward that we don't even deserve, or as one of his enemies, to face his eternal wrath because we fully deserve it because of our sin. But in his word, he also says that he so loved the world, God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life He goes on to say that God sent his son into the world so that the world might be saved through him. The time of judgment is also the time of salvation. He will come to judge his enemies, but he will save his children at the same time. He comes to save his saints. He comes to gather his sheep. He comes to rescue all of his children. This is his perfect plan. This is his perfect will, and it has been set from all eternity. In fact, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says this. It says, remember the former things long past for I am God and there is no other like me. I am God and there is no one like me declaring end from beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. It's just a matter of timing when it all takes place. Ecclesiastes 3 talks about this. Ecclesiastes 3, 1-11 talks about the providence of God, the timing of God for all things. It begins by saying there is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. And it concludes in verse 11 that God, he has made everything appropriate in its time. And he has set eternity in our hearts The day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day of reckoning, the day of salvation, the day that his promises are fulfilled, the day is set. It's just a matter of time. Second Peter 3, 5 through 13 talks about this day that must and will come in time. And it says, by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So this speaking of God's creation of all things by his word. He goes on to say, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. This is a history of the world. This is a history of creation in just a few verses. He goes on to say, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord... One day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Peter's just saying, it's just timing. God is not slow. He does everything exactly, meticulously, perfectly in his allotted time. He says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. He is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish. But for all to come to repentance, do you know why he has not returned already? Do you know why creation has not been destroyed by the wrath of Jesus Christ currently today? Because in his patience and his love, he is preserving creation. Even though evil is rampant and creation is decaying and wickedness is abounding, all for the sake of his beloved elected children so that all of them may come to salvation. It's not about him being slow. It's about him being patient. It's about him being loving and kind. It's about him wanting you to repent and you to believe and you to come to him. That's why he has not returned. He goes on to say, but the day of the Lord will come. Do not mistake his patience for him, for him uh, not being able to do what he's supposed to do. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt away with intense heat. But according to his promise... We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's just a matter of time, it's all about. Timing. Revelation begins and ends with this timing of the coming of Christ. Revelation 1, 7 through 8, speaking of Jesus Christ again, says, Behold, look, pay attention. He, Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. It will not be good for those on earth when Christ returns. He says, So it is to be amen. This is set in stone, established by God. He will return. And then he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. At the very end, Revelation 22, 12 through 13, again speaking of Christ, or speaking, Christ speaking here, he says, Behold, look, pay attention, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha. I am the omega. I am the first. I am the last. I am the beginning and the end. It's just a matter of time. Christ is the one that holds time in his hands. Christ is the one that sits at God's right hand. Christ is only waiting for his father to say, go, and he will return. It's just about timing. Prophecy is never about Possibilities or probability. Prophecy is always about God's preservation and God's perfect providence. If it has been proclaimed in his word that it will occur, then it must occur the way he said it it will occur. It's just a matter of time. John MacArthur It says divine providence is God's preserving his creation, operating in every event in the world, and directing the things in the universe to his appointed end for them. God's providence is the meticulous, encompassing, and grandest uh, and and minutest aspects of life. By God's providence, he takes his providence, Preservation, his concurrence, and his governance of all things, and he puts it all together to make sure that all things work to his perfect end. All things to be to the glory of Christ and for the good of all of those who believe in him, all of those who are called according to his purpose. Again, it's just a matter of time. And God, in his wonderful kindness, has revealed in his written word given to his children. He has revealed from the beginning to the end of Scripture his perfect plan. Not everything about his plan, but everything that you and I need to know regarding the things of God so that we can both believe in him and live in godliness and glorify him in this present life. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, we see his perfect plan unfold in his perfect timing. So today I want to look at two little verses and then a bunch of verses that that talk about the Lord's perfect timing and what he has done. We're going to look at Galatians 4, 4-5, and then we're going to look at, Lord willing, if we have time, some of these prophecies in Scripture that foretell the coming of Christ so that we can trust more and more in his perfect providence and we can trust more and more in his perfect timing of all things. The birth of Jesus Christ was timed perfectly. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was timed perfectly. And the return of Jesus Christ is timed perfectly. So look at Galatians 4, 4 through 5 with me. In Galatians 4, verse 4, he says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. These two little verses... I mean, they're, they're, they're just, they're full of amazing truth. These two little verses tell the whole purpose of, of, of the, the Christmas story, the birth of Christ, why God has done what he has done. And today I want to look at these verses, look at some of the perfect timing of God, and then I want to take you back to some of these prophecies that, that foretell the coming of the Messiah so that we can see that his perfect plan has been laid out from beginning to end, And Lord willing, that will help solidify our trust and our faith in him and in his word even more. So the first thing we want to look at is the perfect timing. The perfect timing, the very beginning, he says here, but when the fullness of time came. The fullness of time, it just means the completion, the end, the fulfillment of time. All things have been completed according to his perfect providence and the time is now. There's nothing more to be done, nothing more to be said, no more prophecies to be revealed, no more events in history. We could talk about how the Lord used Greece and used Rome to prepare the way for the gospel and for the Messiah, how he did all things, even how Romans crucified criminals to point back to Isaiah 53 and the things that, that, that God had revealed. But, but, but laying all that aside and what mankind was doing on this present earth for 400 years from Malachi to, to Matthew, preparing the way for the Messiah— I want to look at what the Lord was doing in his perfect providential plan for the Lord, for God, everything was complete. Everything had been revealed. Everything had been done. Everything was fulfilled and everything was ready for God to become man, for the son to take on flesh, for a body to be prepared for him, for Jesus Christ to come and to be born for him to take on humanity. The son of God would come to take on flesh. He came to do his father's will to offer up himself once for all, and obtain eternal redemption for all the children of God. It was the perfect time. It's really cool if you go back and look at Deuteronomy 29 through 32, at the very end of Moses's sermons there as Israel's on the plains of Moab going into the promised land about to take Jericho and everything else. Moses or God through Moses summarizes the whole redemptive plan. Of Israel and what God will do. He basically summarizes Genesis 12 through Revelation 19 in Deuteronomy 29 to 32 and writes a song and the song is purpose for Israel to remember and to know as these things unfold in time that God is doing exactly what he said he would do and it would call them to repentance and when they repent the Messiah will return. It's all just laid out there in three little chapters the timing of Israel's rejection of God, being dispersed and being uh, scattered throughout the nations by Assyria and Babylon and later Rome, a remnant returning, a temple being rebuilt, Jerusalem being reestablished, everything, all those things, even their repentance, laid out there at the very beginning. Moses tells them, here's what's going to happen over the next 4,000 years. It's just a matter of time. And God, at this time, in Galatians 4, he's saying, Everything had been prepared for the Messiah to come for the first time. The temple had been rebuilt. Jerusalem had been reestablished. The remnant had come back from Babylon. John the Baptist had been uh, sent by God preparing the way for the Messiah. Everything was complete. It was his perfect timing for the Messiah to come and for his people to reject him. It was the perfect timing for the servant of God to die for the sins of his people. It was the perfect timing for them to nail him to the cross for them to be scattered amongst the nations. It was the perfect timing, when there will be a perfect timing, what Zechariah 12.10 says, for them to at one day look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn over him as one mourns over an only son and weep bitterly over him. There will be a perfect time in the future for them to repent and to return, to recognize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of Israel. And like Romans 11.15 says, if their rejection is reconciliation for the world, if, if, if Israel's rejection, the perfectly timed rejection of the Messiah and the dismissal of the one that is to be their king and sit on David's throne, if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, means that all of us as Gentiles are being reconciled to God through the preaching of the gospel, through the work of the church, then he says, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? It's just a matter of time. All of Israel will be saved. There will come a time when Israel will accept their Messiah and Christ will return. He must because he says he will. It's just a matter of time. Our salvation, the salvation of Israel, God's entire timetable of redemption, it's all about the perfect providence and perfect timing of God. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10 talks about this. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Now look at this, look at this. This is prophecy and providence married together. It says, in all wisdom and insight. So here is God's perfect wisdom and perfect insight. It said, he made known to us the mystery of his will. So even what he's revealed in his word is part of his perfect insight. Wisdom and insight, what to reveal to his children. He's revealed to us the mystery of his will during this present age for our redemption. It says, according to his kind intention, which he has purposed in him, in Christ, and look at this with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. All of these things revealed in Scripture are part of the perfect wisdom and will of God given to us, the church as a revelation of his mysterious will during this time, and it's all going to come to play in the fullness of time. Speaking here specifically, the fullness of time in the return of Christ. He says that is a summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. So, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son to be born of a woman. And when the fullness of time comes, he will return again, breaking the heavens open, coming with all of his people to come and rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years with all of his people and then for all of eternity. It's the perfect timing. Secondly, we see the perfect sending here. The perfect sending. He says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. To send forth here means to send out, to dispatch. He was sent from heaven to earth. He already existed. Christ has always existed. He is eternal. This was the time of his sending. So God sent his son to come to earth. Now the significance here, again, is not that he was sent, but why he was sent and how he was sent. In fact, if you look at it, there's there's two things that are very important here about this sending. He was born of a woman and he was born under the law. This is unique about this sending of Christ. If you look at the Old Testament, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who we call Jesus Christ, now after his incarnation had been sent many many times before. Jesus Christ had been sent by God to this earth many times in the Old Testament. He had come many times. There are many theophanies in the Old Testament. He was present and participated in creation. He came as the angel of God many times in the Old Testament to converse with, to talk with people, and to empower and help people. He was with Israel as they left Egypt and wandered in the desert for 40 years. He was the captain of the host of the Lord who led Israel in their conquest of Canaan, whom Joshua saw out in the desert. He even appeared as a man and spoke with Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He wrestled with Jacob, in, 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 uh, in Genesis. He appeared as a man before, but this time was different because this time he was born of a woman. He became one of us. He took on flesh. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became fully man This is the seed of Eve. This is the descendant of Abraham. This is the son of David. This is the son of man that that Daniel prophesied about. Mary was his biological mother. And God is his father. He was fully God and fully man. One person, two natures, truly and completely God, truly and completely man. That's what makes this coming of Christ the Christmas, the birth of Christ, significant. It's what theologians call the, the hypostatic union, that he has two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. It's what Philippians 2 talks about. Though he was equal with God, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. He had to be fully man to be the substitute for our sins. The angel of the Lord could not be crucified for our sins. The, the, the one who wrestled with Jacob or appeared to Abraham could not die for our sins. He had to be one of us. He had to be fully man. But he had to be fully God to have the ability, the capability, the power to atone for our sins. So he was born of a woman. He also says he was born under the law. Again, this is unique of his coming as a man. The angel of the Lord, like we said, or the, the Christ who led Israel through the desert, or who led Israel into the promised land, was not born under the law. What he's saying here is he was born under the law, both as an Israelite and as a human. As an Israelite, he was obligated by the revealed law of God in scripture to obey God's word as one of us, as a man, as a human being. And he alone uh, fulfilled, completed, and lived up perfectly to God's standard, which qualifies him alone to be the, the only possible sacrifice or sinless substitute for our sins. Only he was qualified because only he was sinless. Only he was qualified because he was the only perfect human able to atone for the sinfulness of God's people Israel. Romans 8, 3-4 says it this way. It says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Only Christ could do that as an Israelite, as a man. But like all of us, he was born as a man, as, as a human being. So whether we're Jew or Gentile, all of us, all of us have the law written in our hearts and all of us are accountable to the Lord. Romans two twelve through 16 says this, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So we're all doomed. It doesn't matter, Jew or Gentile. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, is the doers of the law that will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, and their conscience bearing witness. And their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So all of us know good and evil. All of us have the law written in our heart. All of us stand accountable before the Lord, Jew or Gentile. If the word of God has been revealed to you, which everyone in this room is in that category now, because you have heard the word, you have set under the proclamation of the word, and you're accountable for now for all that you have heard, you are accountable to that. But even for those who have not heard, the Lord has built into each of us an understanding And understanding that we are sinners, and understanding that we are going to face judgment, and understanding that He is all powerful, that He is mighty, that He is majestic, and that we never live up to that standard. Even how the world always says, well, no one is perfect. We know these things. And He says, on that day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All are accountable. But in his perfect timing, God sent his only son to become one of us and to fulfill the law of God as the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then he tells us the purpose. So in the, in, in, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born, un, born as a woman, born under the law. He says, so that, here's the purpose, so that he might redeem those who are under the law. This is the perfect redemption. The Perfect redemption. Here's the purpose. Here is why he came. Here is why he is born, and here is why he fulfill. Or he was born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were born under the law. Galatia, uh, to, to, to redeem here it means to, to liberate, to deliver, to purchase. Galatians three thirteen. Right before this talks about it says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He purchased us with his own blood. So he purchased us and he redeemed us. And then there's a second purpose here, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is the perfect adoption, the perfect redemption, the perfect adoption, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. He is the one, he is the one uh, that, that redeems us. We are the ones that receive adoption. It means to receive, to obtain, to welcome. We are the recipients. We become children of God. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that is the purchase price for our redemption. It's his blood that is our ransom. Uh, uh, for the, uh, I'm sorry, it is, uh, his blood is our ransom. And by the blood of his own son, we have been bought and we've been brought into the family of God. He's adopted us as one of his own children and purchased us with the blood of his only begotten son. That is the only way any sinner can be saved. And Jesus Christ himself said this. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. He is the only one that can save us from our sins and it is only by his blood that we can be redeemed and purchased and adopted as children of God. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21 says it this way. He says, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. There's no other way. Gold can't do it. Silver can't do it. Your works can't do it. Prayers can't do it. The, The only thing that can redeem us, he says, you were redeemed, he says, with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That is the only thing that can pay For our redemption and can pay our ransom and that can bring us into his kingdom as his children. He says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Ephesians 1, 3 through 3-7 says it this way, speaking of the same redemption, the same uh, ransom price, and speaking of the same providential plan of God, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So it has nothing to do with you that we would be holy and blameless before him. It says, in love, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Only through Christ can we be adopted. Only through Christ can we come to God. So he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to his kind intention, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why we never stop celebrating Christ. We were bought with the precious blood of the spotless lamb and his blood was the ransom price paid for our redemption and our salvation. And his spirit is the seal of our adoption as fellow heirs and children of God. And all of this is revealed to us in his word. We would have no understanding of any of these things that we're talking about apart from the revealed word of God, the mystery of his will that he has given to his children in this present age to be able to know him. So with the remaining time that we have this morning, I want to look at this perfectly timed revelation from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to read the whole Bible. I'm just kidding. We're going to look at a lot of it, though, really quickly. I had made slideshows, but I made them wrong. <laughs> I wanted them up here so you could see this, because I'm going to fly. I'm just going to give you the verse references. If you are super Bible man, flip along with me. If not, just listen. In Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. He says, And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we saw his glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 1, speaking of the word of Jesus Christ, it says, Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, in Christ, all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3. He, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of God. He's the radiance of, of his glory, of God the Father's glory. He, Jesus Christ, is the exact representation of his nature. And he, Jesus Christ, upholds all things by the word of his power. Genesis 1.31, and God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. In Genesis 3, sin enters into God's good creation. The serpent deceives Eve by his craftiness. The woman being deceived falls into sin, gives to her husband. He eats too, and mankind sins against God. Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Revelations 12.9, The serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. John 8.44, He, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So all creation was cursed because of the sin of mankind. And all of creation longs for the revelation of the children of God. Romans eight twenty 20-22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him, God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth until now. But with the curse came the first declaration of the Christ. In Genesis 3, the same chapter that sin entered into this world by the temptations of Satan, the fall of Adam and Eve, the fall of mankind, we see God's first declaration of his son, Jesus Christ, who would come and die for our sins. This is the promised seed of Eve. This is the head crusher. I always tell my children. This is the head crusher, and he will crush the head of Satan. He will end the cursed. He will end Satan. He will destroy the works of the devil and redeem those under the law of sin and death. Genesis 3.15, God declares to Satan, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he, singular, he will bruise or crush you on the head, and you, Satan, will bruise or crush him on the heel. We go on to see mankind's dive into sinfulness. God destroys the earth because of sin, preserves Noah and his family. They come out of the ark. He reestablishes mankind on earth. You got Babel and the dispersion of the nations. And then in Genesis 12, we see another revelation of this one who is coming, of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Genesis 12, one through three, we find out that this one coming will be the promised seed of Abraham who will bless all of the earth. God said to Abraham, Genesis twelve one through 3, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I, God, will make you a great nation. I, God, will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will, and the one who curses you I will curse. And he says this. He says, and in, and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He goes on to say to him in Genesis 22, after, after Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac and God provides uh, uh, a, a ram to be sacrificed in his place, he says to Abraham, in your seed, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's very significant because then in Galatians 3, God goes on to commentate on his own word and says in Galatians 3, of this seed of Abraham. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. There it is. The seed of Abraham must be and is Jesus Christ because God, in his own word, says it. If the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God granted it to Abraham by means of a promise until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made, speaking of Christ. We go on in in the Pentateuch, in the books of Moses, to see that this is also the future promised prophet that Moses talked about. In Deuteronomy 18.18, God says, speaking through Moses to the people of Israel, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen, like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. There is a prophet coming, like Moses, but unlike Moses, this prophet, God will put his words in his mouth and he will speak all that God commands him. We go on to see in Isaiah speaking of this prophet, both that he will come from David and this prophet will be filled with the spirit of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and has a wisdom and understanding that only God has. In Isaiah eleven one through four, it says, "A shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse; a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him: the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eye sees, nor make a decision by what his ear hears. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his." His mouth And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. This same prophet of the Lord from the lineage of David, speaking in first person in Isaiah 61, says it this way. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me To bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, and to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now, if there was any doubt that this prophet is Christ, Christ Himself commenting on Isaiah 61 affirms it. We know the prophet is Jesus because when he was on this earth in Luke four seventeen through 21 it says this, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, handed to Christ, and Christ opened the book and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and he has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And to set free those who are oppressed. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And listen, this is unbelievable. This is so amazing. Don't ever read over this and go, oh, that's cool. You read this and you go, oh my goodness. This is God reading his own word. And he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And all eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began saying to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is amazing. God is sitting in the room with them going, my words that I proclaimed, I am he, and I am here. I am the one, I am the prophet, I am the one that comes from David, I am the one filled with the spirit of the Lord, with all counsel and wisdom, knowing all things. I speak his words, I know his will. He is the one, he knew he was the one, he knew he was the prophet and the king. We see in the Old Testament that he is the king in the line of David who reigns forevermore and he is the priest in the line of Melchizedek who has no beginning or end. Genesis 49.10 The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples numbers 24 17 I see him but not now I behold him but not near a star shall come forth from Jacob a scepter shall rise from Israel Psalm one ten one through 4 the Lord says to my Lord God speaking to God sit at my right hand he's speaking to his son until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, and the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. The father will establish the son as king, and and then the son will rule and reign as king. And the father says, rule in the midst of your enemies, for your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew, and the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And then he says this of the king, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He is the prophet. He is the king. He is the priest of God. In First Chronicles 17, 11 through 14, the Lord says to David, when your days, David, are fulfilled, that you must go to be for, with your fathers so when you die, he says, I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be one of your sons, David, and I will establish his kingdom. I, God, will establish his kingdom. And he He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever, and I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my loving kindness away from him, as I took it away from him who was before you, David, but I will settle him in my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. This is not about possibilities and probabilities. It's about timing. God's king must be established forever, or God is a liar. Which will you have it be? Either he says what he says and he is who he is, or he's a liar. He goes on to talk about this, this eternal kingdom and this eternal king in Daniel two forty four. He says, in the days of those kings, God, the God of heaven, will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. It must happen. There must be a kingdom on this earth with a king that comes from God and from David. Who God will establish and the kingdom will never end. It will never be destroyed. It will last forever and his throne will never end. His scepter will never ever stop ruling. He is the king. He says, and it will crush, this kingdom will crush and put an end to all kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. In Daniel 7, 18 and 27, actually, Daniel 7, the whole thing is so good. But he says, the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. For all ages to come, it must happen. The saints of God must possess the kingdom of God forever on this earth for all ages Then he says, The sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey him, the everlasting king. In Luke 1 31 to 33, Gabriel comes to Mary and says these words And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That little line just summed up all those prophecies. The Lord God will give to this king in your womb the throne of his father David, who he talked to generations before and said i will raise up one of your sons and he will be my son and i will place him on your throne to reign and to rule forever on a, for a kingdom that will never end and gabriel continued and said to mary and he will reign over the house of jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end Psalm 2, speaking to this king, God says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and to the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath will soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Don't stand against the king, don't stand against the son. The Lord will do all he's declared. Run into the very one that will judge your soul. Run to the one that rightfully condemns you because of your sin. Because he's also the one that died to pay for your sin and has said if you come to him that he will forgive your sins. Micah 5, two through three he says, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Ephrathah, too, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Now look at this, his going forth are from long ago. So he's always existed from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until a time, God will give up Israel until a time when she who is in labor has born a child. Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call this child, his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders. His name, the name of this child will be Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace, there will be no end to his government, or to the increase of his government, or to peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Do you see? He's always saying the same thing, he's always declaring the same story over and over and over from Genesis 1 all the way through Malachi. It's the story of the king that will come and reign on the throne of David. The kingdom will be established and last forever. The king himself will be the son of David and the son of God, and God will establish his throne, and God will ensure that he will destroy all of his enemies, and this king will reign forevermore. He is the prophet. He is the eternal priest of God for the people of God. He is the eternal king that will reign on David's throne forever, and we also see that he is the suffering servant of God who will save his people from their sins. In Isaiah 42, God says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. He says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he's established justice on the earth. So this servant terminology is now mixing with the king and the prophet terminology. This is the same one. But this, when he speaks about the servant, he speaks about something very different and very unique. In Isaiah 49, the servant speaking for himself says, now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob Back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. So this is the servant speaking. And look at this. Here's God speaking about the servant. God says, It is too small a thing that you, my servant, uh that, that, that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Now listen to this. Many people right now in this world sit around thinking it's impossible for Israel to be regathered and for the nation of Israel to repent and to be saved, for, David, for the king to sit on David's throne, all that sort of stuff. And God says here, that's a small thing. It's too small for my servant to save Israel alone, to regather the people, to, 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 to bring my people to repentance and to rule and reign over my people Israel. Look at what he says. He says, I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. We're already experiencing that. We're watching that in the church. It's too small a thing for the Messiah to come and just save Israel. He is going to take this servant, and he is going to make him a light to all nations, so that all that salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The servant of God, the king of Israel, the prophet that will come like uh, Moses, he will be the one that will bring salvation to all of us to the Jews and to the Gentiles. This is one of the first prophecies of, of what we see in the church. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and, and, and its Holy One, to the despised one, the servant, to the abhorred one by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise, princes will bow down, because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, has chosen you. The world will despise him, the world will reject him, the people of God, Israel, will reject their Messiah, but God has chosen him. Isaiah 42, speaking of this servant, he says, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up. He will be greatly exalted. But look at what he says. But just as many were astonished at you, my people, So it it blew people's mind that God would reject his people Israel, that God allowed Assyria and Babylon to come and destroy his people, that God allowed Rome to come and to wipe out the people of Israel, that God proclaimed the things in Hosea, that he divorces his people and shows this divorce situation between God and his people, and that God brings them back. He says people look at Israel, and they're, 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 they're blown away and astonished at what he has done. And he says in the same way, people will be astonished What I do to my own son, but why I do it is the most important thing. He says, Just as many were astonished at you, Israel, my people, so his, my servant's, appearance was marred more than any man, and his form marred more than the sons of men. Isaiah 53 picks up and says, He was despised and forsaken of men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Like one from men, from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. But surely our griefs he, my servant, himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him smi- uh, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. So both Israel struck him and God struck him. He was afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, the servant of God. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered? Basically, this was mind-blowing. No one would have guessed that the Messiah would die. As for his generation, who would consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living? And he was cut off for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him, his servant, to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And he goes on to say, he poured out himself to death. He was numbered with transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many and he interceded for transgressors. These revelations of the servant that have words that mix into the same revelations of the king and of the prophet and the priest that would come. Tell us something about the Messiah that was mind-blowing to all the world, and even today. That he would have to die, that he would be cut off out of the land of the living, and that in some way his death would provide the forgiveness, the, the payment, the atonement for the sins of the people of God. And Peter puts it all together. In the first sermon of the church in Acts 2, Peter stands up on a rooftop as the Holy Spirit is now descended upon the church. And Peter, says, took his stand with the eleven. He raised his voice and he declared to them, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man... Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in this power. He goes on to say, this Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received the Father's promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. And then he goes on to say, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified Peter got it. The spirit revealed it. He's putting it all together. The servant came. He was crucified by his people. And this is the one that God has established as king and ruler. This is their Messiah. And he is the savior of the world. And it says, now when those who heard it, heard this, they were pierced to their heart and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Listen, everyone who can hear my voice, everyone who sits here today, everyone who comes to Jesus Christ repenting of their sins and believing in him will be saved. And this is the Christmas message that we need to hear Because he himself has said this. Here is Christ himself speaking on this earth. Look at what he says. John 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That all of those he has given to me, I lose nothing but I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I, Jesus Christ, myself, will raise him up on the last day. In Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden by your sinfulness, by the world, by the religions and the, the, the crazy things of this world. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. I am gentle and humble.'" And heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. In Matthew 25, 34, speaking of those who have come to him, he says at the end, Come, all of you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And in John 10, he cries out to the crowds and he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I laid down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And And I know them, and they follow me, and I will give to them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. These are the words of the servant, of the king, of the prophet, of the priest, of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. He calls out to those who know that they are sinners, who know that they are heavy laden and burdened by their sinfulness and by the religions of this world. And he says to them, come to me, all who come to me and repent of their sins and believe in me, they are the ones that I will give eternal life. Everyone who comes to him, he gives life. The God of all creation sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into this world. He was born as a man. He was born to die as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. His blood has purchased your redemption. Everyone who comes to him will be saved. And everyone who beholds the son will have eternal life. And everyone who repents of their sin will be forgiven. And everyone who believes in him will be given the Holy Spirit. And will be adopted into his family as joint heirs and brethren of Christ because he lays down his life for his sheep, they will hear his voice. They will come to him. And he will give them eternal life. And no one can take his sheep out of his hands because he is God. Today is the day for you to forsake your sin and to come to him to repent of your sins. It's time to come to Christ We've already said his timing is perfect. Everything he does is perfect in his timing. Even our individual salvations have all been perfectly timed by him. And I'm telling you today that his word says that today is the day for you to come to him. In Hebrews 3, he says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil or unbelieving heart. He goes on to say, uh, that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another as long as, uh, I'm sorry, encourage one another day after day as long as it's called today. I'm doing that to you right now. I'm encouraging you now as long as today is today, you come to Christ so that none of your hearts will be hardened by the deceitfulness for sin, of sin. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's time to come to Christ. Second Corinthians 6 2 says this, we urge you, not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, your word is so good from beginning to end. You have revealed your perfect plan. Father, we know that the prophets, the Psalms, the narratives of the Old Testament, the epistles of the New Testament, all, all, of, the, all of your word is a, re- a revelation of your perfectly timed providence and will. In all of your word, all of your word screams Jesus Christ. He is the one who made all things. He is the one that will inherit all things. He is the one who crushes the head of Satan, conquers sin and death. He is the one that has authority and power given to him to give eternal life to all of those who believe. He is the one, the anointed one of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the eternal prophet, the eternal priest, the one who will reign forever and whose kingdom will have no end. And he has told us over and over and over in his word revealed to us that we must come to him that all those who come to him and all those who believe in him, all those who repent of the sins, that he will forgive them. That he paid for our sins on the cross 2,000 years ago. That he did the work and it is finished. He accomplished the redemption of all the children of God. And he returns to gather and to bring all of his people with him, to, to live with him, to rule and to reign with him and to destroy all of his enemies. So Lord, I pray that everyone... Hearing this word today, hearing the truth of your gospel and the reason that you sent your son will listen to your word, will humble themselves, will repent of their sins, will come to Jesus Christ and be saved. He is the only hope that we have. He is the only way to the Father. This is the only truth that will set us free. He is our eternal life. So Father, I pray, do your work in the hearts of all of your children this morning. Help all of us to resolve to live our lives for Christ, to repent of our sins, and to follow you all the rest of the days of our life. We pray this in your heavenly name, amen.